Hey, welcome to Life 2.0 Podcast. I'm John St. Augustine. Time to go up the down staircase in the outdoor. Make sense out of the senseless. If at all possible, find the obvious buried in the absurd. Hold on to your friggin' lug nuts. It's time for an overall. Glad to have you back with me all around the world, especially thanks to the Life 2.0 subscribers who keep this thing humming along. I'm truly amazed because this is a technology that did not exist when I started in radio in 19. None of your damn business what year I started. But this technology did not even exist. And so we used to have to go to the studio with mountains of equipment and miles of wires and things. And I'm, I'm a studio rat because of all the years in radio. But I got to tell you, there's something about sitting in my skivvies here, you know, having a cup of coffee and doing a radio show for my own studio. It's got a lot of moment for me. But I always start this show saying, among other things, hold on to your lug nuts. It's time for an overhaul. And I had uh, uh, a list of people that when I say that, I really mean it. I mean, everybody on here, even when I'm just kind of doing this solo, there's something I hope you'll pay attention to. But today, among many days, is an exception to that, meaning you need to pay extra attention because it is not often in my life, especially as someone who has been in the media as long as I have, that I get to stay in touch with people over decades. And so I could count on my bent fingers, on two hands, the amount of people that started as guests that became friends over the years. And uh, But today is really special to me because this is a person that I first was introduced to 23 years ago in her book, uh, only when I sleep, my family's journey through cancer. And I was on the air in Michigan at the time. And I had been on the air about three years. And back then when we wanted a guest, I think there was this magazine, which is probably still around, called Radio TV Interview Report. Or publicists would send my producer, Anne Marie, pitches to have people on as guests. And I was doing a three hours a day, five days a week live radio show. So there's a lot of moving parts and you have to have people that know what they're doing on as guests. And sometimes you get some really good ones and sometimes you're like, Eh, not so much. But this one, I was not prepared for the connection to this person. I was not prepared for the story of this person. And for certain, I never thought in a kajillion years, at 23 years later, that we'd still be having conversation. And let me just tell you, I, I, this first time, somewhere I have the tape of that first conversation we did all those years ago. And I went digging for it yesterday. And I thought, I also don't want to find it, maybe, because... My voice has changed so dramatically. I, I sounded like I was a 14-year-old kid at the time, but the intent was there. And the thing I remember most from this book, which is very powerful, about recounting her journey through cancer and how it affected her family, was her authenticity and her honesty and how she presented all this. So we've stayed in touch over the years, and I got to tell you, I'm a huge fan. I've watched her go from that through the loss of her husband, through the raising of her son as a single mom, through some incredible work in business. Uh, she had her own radio show. She does this Don't Wait project. I mean, when Irma Bamek says back in the day that when she stands before the creator, she hopes to, she can say to God that I used everything that you gave me. And I think that applies to Lisa Bradshaw, who joins me from Wenatchee, Washington. Lisa B., I will listen to all of that. I did you it in what? one breath. So. <laughs> Thank you so much. I can't believe it's been that long either. Yeah. Um, I, I remember standing in my kitchen in Houston doing the interview with you for the first time. And it was one of the first couple I did. So yeah. I was pretty nervous. 
and you put me at ease and here we are. Uh, are you still in Wenatchee? I am. So it's a beautiful I got, place. It is a beautiful place. I came out there, what, uh, 10 years ago? Uh, for the launch of my book, Big Shoes, yeah. and the launch of the Don't Wait Project. It was in September of 2011. Wow. Uh, yeah, and you gave a nice speech and, and met all of our family and friends. And It's very cool yeah, to meet your folks very, and everybody else mm-hmm. that was there. And it's an interesting place, Wenatchee. It's kind of like... Not a place I'd ever thought I'd visit, but I'm glad that I did. And I went there and I had, and the best part was not what we did at this beautiful event space that you held it in with the book launch, but afterwards at your house. Yeah. I'm out in the yard playing catch with your kid. And I'm thinking <laughs> to myself, that was worth the flight. Yeah, that kid's turning 24 next oh, month. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, so he, he was barely born when you and I met. Oh, geez. He was barely born, yeah. Listen, what I was talking about in there when I say about holding on to your lug nuts, it's time for an overall is because you have been through more shit than most mm-hmm. people that I know of. And I know that there are times it's knocked you down because we have stayed in touch over the years, but I always see this resilience in you. And I don't know that I've ever asked where that comes from, but where does it come from? Faith for sure. You know, I, I don't, uh, I've spent more time in prayer than in conversation with people sometimes. It's just, uh, there have been a lot of times I've, I remember when Hunter, my son, was young and I didn't want him to see me falling apart in the months and years, days, hours, months, years after his dad died. And I would I would go to the closet and cry and keep the door open just a little so I could hear him coming but not let him hear me cry. And sometimes, of course, I let him see me cry. But, um, you know, I just really, I've thought about this a lot lately. It's almost, it'll be 19 years next week since Wesley's double lung transplant, my late husband, and um, which led to his death six weeks later. And really, I think a lot of it is that I, if you'd have told me 19 years ago, it's going to be okay, you're going to learn how to live without him, it would have been unimaginable to me. And it was unimaginable to me. So I think that the best thing I could figure out is there's a quote, I wish I knew the name. Um, there's a quote, so long as you speak my name, you shall never be forgotten. Mm. And that's just the only thing I could do because I can't, I can't live without him. And I chose not to. Mm. So I include him in our lives in a big way. We talk about him. He's in pictures around the house. Um, he's part of our lives. And that's really the only way I could get through him leaving the planet. So you went through cancer when you were a very young woman and you come through that, you, you write this book where you and I first had intersection. And then over the years after that, um, we stayed in touch. And I remember getting the email uh, because Wesley had gotten sick and, and it was weird circumstances. You guys moved into a new house or something. There was paint in the garage. No, um, he was uh, he was cleaning out an old cabinet in our garage. Uh, We'd lived there quite a while. And I we for whatever reason, Hunter was in his room playing or in the house with me. Usually he'd be outside with his fake lawnmower and weed eater working with his dad outside, uh, little toys. And he was inside and Wesley came in. I was standing in the kitchen and then there was our laundry room and then there was the garage and he opened the door and said, I need you guys to stay inside. I don't, I don't feel well. Uh, I feel, I don't feel right. I'm cleaning out this cabinet. I don't feel good. And I said, well, you need to stop. He said, I am. I'm just going to dump this stuff out and you guys stay inside and I'll come back in. And he went back out and I watched him from afar lift up this wet bag of fertilizer that should have been dry. And he had never cleaned out this cabinet in all the years we'd lived there. And uh, he threw it in the trash and there were some droppings and things in that cabinet as well. And he felt short of breath that day to the point that 
when the landscapers delivered the mulch and things like that, he couldn't shovel it. I had to, and then he tried to mow the lawn the next day and he couldn't, I mean, it was just our lives changed mm. on that Saturday. There was a, there was a before and an after, and it was yeah. that day. And we were just getting our, we did our usual kind of spring, getting the yard ready for Hunter's birthday party the next week. And, and then he just progressively got sick and was hospitalized multiple times that year. And, and exactly a year to the day he cleaned the garage, he received a double lung transplant. Yeah. So. I also remember the email when he passed and uh, yeah. that you sent out to a few people. And I, I again, I'm thinking to myself, um, where does this all go? You know, this, this is unimaginable loss with your young family. And where does this all go? And so the downside of that is things went that way. The upside of that is you decided over... Uh, much turmoil and difficulty to move forward. A lot of people find that very difficult, as they should. Loss is loss. You know, you can couch it any way you want. And and grief, I think, uh, is you know the you know the grief we feel is equal to or greater than the love we have for that person. So it's something that's ongoing. But you slowly crawled out of this abyss, and I know that you did it for Hunter because he was there, and that needs to be done. Absolutely. And you need and you did it for yourself at some point. And I also know that the relationships around your family, of course, that changes them too. It's not just your loss, it's their loss. Exactly. And I had met Wesley when we were kids. I was eight and he was 10. Our parents were best friends. We'd spent, you know, neighborhood barbecues and time together. And, uh, you know, he was like a son to my parents. And his brother and I were friends since we were kids. We still are, of course. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I've known his sister since she was 13 and now she's got a family of her own. So it's just this, um, you know, we've gone through it together. And I think a lot of it, you know, Wesley lived in Houston. We lived in Houston together as a family. And I chose to move to the West Coast soon after he died. And that was a big, big decision that I knew I could undo if I needed to. And, uh, but we've still remained close to them. Wesley's mom and I are closer than ever. She, she sent me a love, lovely message just the other day, thanking me for, honoring her son Mm. and uh yeah there's just i think we all feel the same way in that if we keep them close somehow we can live another day you know yeah i'm having this uh weird pop-up memory lisa of maybe your mom or somebody at the wenatchee thing giving me a jar of salsa oh that's wesley's mom wesley's mom Yeah, yeah yeah so that's a funny story because she had all these tomatoes um they garden and they did farmer's market and stuff and wesley's brother was a chef and he's moved on to other career choices now but mm-hmm. she said what do i do with all these tomatoes and he said i don't know i'll make some salsa out of it <laughs> and it was such a great recipe that was literally good. those are jarred now in stores oh uh, is and, that right yeah 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 well, yeah. I remember it's damn good. And I remember taking like two or three bottles. Here, take these with you when you go yeah. home. I go, okay, well, man. and, you know, <laughs> Wesley had told his brother, you need to do something with this. And after Wesley died, uh, Wayne said, Mom, we need to do something. It's called Two Brothers Salsa. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. yes. And so they're still being sold. It is. Are you Really? It is. It is. Folks, yeah. there's your unshameless plug for Two Brothers <laughs> Salsa. You can, fi- can you find it online? I think so. I think so. And I, I think it's sold <laughs> in stores in Texas. And they, yeah. they still sell them at the farmer's market sometimes. And yeah, they, they it's, a, it's definitely a, a love project. Yeah, it's good stuff. So you keep moving forward. We've stayed in touch during that time. And, you know, I know that uh, there's a, a huge... Uh, swing that happens when you have deep loss like that to come back to some sort of normal life you have to raise your son things move forward 
you know, I know that the faith is a huge part of your life, but that day-to-day stuff, you know, I mean, how, I'm looking for the how-to, the DIY on this for people listening that have had lost someone so close to them, whether it was their husband or wife or brother, sister, mother, or even a child. The DIY stuff to me is always like where the rubber meets the road on a daily basis at five o'clock when you just don't feel like doing a damn thing except crawling into a corner. How do you resurrect yourself? And I know that so much of your writing and your work reflects those moments, not just the ones that are, you know, at the top of the of the charts where you've written books and the Don't Wait Project, which is nationwide and all these amazing things you do. But it's that nitty gritty stuff to me that always speaks so much to the human spirit that you represent. I think it comes in the work. You know, I, I used to think some of the work I did, like founding the Don't Wait Project, that was really in honor of Wesley and getting people to think about the things that they put off and and the reasons we do it we get too busy or too tired or too comfortable in our lives and then we let go of pieces of ourselves we wanted or things we thought we would do and i mean i remember soon after wesley died and when i say soon i mean year one two three four five that was still that still felt very soon to me i can remember being at the gym and being on the treadmill and wanting to get off and thinking no i'm gonna go a little longer because wesley couldn't you know, just things mm. in my everyday life. Um, but, you know, also to say that I, I've had love again and I've, yeah. you know, I've moved on in my life in a lot of ways that I thought I never could. So I didn't really just kind of stay in this time capsule of Wesley. But most definitely, I think, you know, when I come up with an idea, I try every year to honor him on the anniversary of his transplant and honor the family who donated yeah. Um, their family's organs to us and giving us that chance to try. And I talk a lot. I know you have a connection to organ donation, obviously. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, life is like organ donation. It's about the trying. You know, we don't know what we're going to get. But I'm certainly, you. that quote you talked about at the beginning when you were, before I came on about using all of our guilt, yeah. skills and our talents. I, I, that's one of the couple of quotes that I think of in my life um, as I navigate it, that that I know that there's a reason that I'm still here. And I know that a lot of that, that purpose is connected to Wesley. And by all means, I know that I'm going to keep my promise to him that our kid turns out well and that, that I still raise him the way that we hoped. Well, I think we you've done a hell of a, yeah, from what I've seen in the conversations I've had with this kid, you know, yeah. first of all, I thought he'd be on the mound for the Texas you know, Rangers at some point. <laughs> no, uh, that would be the Astros, but yeah. it's it's the it's the Astros, yeah. Yeah, we don't. We in Chicago, we don't call them the Astros. We call them something else. Let's not even get into that. <laughs> <laughs> we are we are tried and true, and we're still in it. So yeah. yeah. You want to know what we call them? No. Okay, thanks. <laughs> I want us to stay friends. Thank you. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but um, I'm going to fast forward, and I'm trying to remember. It was called Alphabet Moon. Am I getting yeah. that right? What was that? Uh, so that was an idea I had to contribute monetarily a bit to our household because we'd made the decision I wanted to stay home with Hunter, uh, and you know I wanted to contribute a bit. And when he started preschool, I had had this idea. So in, in, in my sophomore year of high school in home ec, we had to do a sewing project, a few of them. And there was, there is a pattern at the fabric store where you can sew letters of the alphabet. And so when I was a sophomore in high school, I sewed Wesley's name and I had them in my room and Wesley was in the Navy. He, you know, we were friends of the family forever, but I hadn't seen him in several years. And I just held this crush. I mean, the day I met him, 
John. I, that was I it, could huh? tell you what he was wearing. I just mm. knew he'd be important to my life. Mm. And I didn't know we'd grow up and get married and have our child and he'd see me through cancer and all of those things. So then when Hunter was starting preschool, I thought, well, I think I'm going to make those pillows. And some woman gave me the great idea to create them in a, like a real whimsical, interesting font, which was architecture, the skills that I didn't have to make a C and make it cute and make it not fall over mm-hmm. on itself. And uh, so the day that I took him to preschool, which was a really, really rough day for me, yeah. um, I went and visited a couple of high-end boutiques in Houston and, and they ordered that day. And at the time, people were just starting to build, you know, have their own websites. I mean, maybe before that, but it was just becoming on my radar. It was in 2003-ish. And I thought, well, I'm going to build, spend the money to have someone build a website because there was definitely no web builders back then. It was all HTML. And I didn't know how to do it. HTML. Oh, God. HTML, yeah. (laughs) And and so I said, uh, well, I'm going to, try to get them on a big show. And if I get them on a big show, I'd learned about the third party endorsement because I got to be on your show, say, for example, you don't pay for advertising, you get someone to want to share your story, and then your your story shared, and you didn't pay it for it, because it's how the media works. Right. And so I thought, well, if I get it on a good TV show, then I'll get in magazines, I'll share the story about you know, my and, and you do know how lo- much of a long shot everything you're saying is, right? Well, see, the, the beauty of it is I had no idea. That's my point. I had you didn't no know. idea. Yeah. So I call up the set decorator, the friend show. You just called <laughs> them. I just called them. And that was before emails. That was before people had tons of emails in their box and all that. And I told him what I had done. And, and he said, well, send them along. And so I sent him a couple of different fabric choices and a couple of different designs. And and what do you know? Uh, the word Emma showed up in in uh, Ross's apartment for mm-hmm. one episode, and then he, I he called me and he said, "I know you probably saw that episode, and I'm not supposed to tell anybody, but Rachel's moving in with Joey, <laughs> and uh, when he when she does, you'll see that the the, the E pillow is gonna be obvious to you." Uh-huh. And boy, was it! It was on the wall in Joey's apartment for the last season and a half. And even when they switched things around, they ended up moving the pillow into. Rachel's room, but the door was open all the time, so you could still see it. Man. And they used it on the anniversary show a couple of years wow. ago. So they kept it all those years, and uh, it changed everything. I we 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 were in InStyle magazine, Parents magazine. Rachel Ray did Oprah Radio with you. Yeah, yeah. It was a real launch. Didn't we? Didn't we do something for either Nate or Jean Chatsky? You made pillows for them or letters do you remember i think for um i did for the office and then a couple of people at your studio there at oprah and and uh and then a couple of people ordered them from there and then i did a i did interviews with both of those folks nate and gene and um yeah it was just incredible but it was that third party endorsement i never paid for i paid for a couple of google ads Mm. But uh, otherwise, it was just getting it in magazines. And the friend show definitely helped because, you know, everyone's got great product ideas. And I had no idea that companies were lining up to get their product placement on that show. Right, right. You know, and, I, when you talk about product placement on TV shows, I've been in search of the Batman cookie jar from Big Bang oh. Theory for about four years. Oh, yeah. It, it's sitting Somebody's in the back. got it. Oh, I know. They're, yeah, they want a grand <laughs> for it. That's not going to happen. Yeah. But I'm looking at some of these things in the background. I'm like, look at that cookie jar. So I hear what you're saying. And I remember when we did the Oprah shows and you came on and talked about, and I believe it was with Gene, uh, to talk mm-hmm. about the, the monetary piece, this, and the marketing piece, this. And, and one of the things that's been really paramount in my career 
as I mentioned, there's just a couple handfuls of people, maybe 10 over 25, 30 years of doing this that I know are there, whether I'm on the radio or not. These are people that Wayne Dyer would check on me. He didn't need my help at that point. Uh, but when I went to Harpo, he called me and he said, so I hear you're going to work with Oprah. And I said, yeah, he goes, so do you have your own show? I said, no, no, yeah, we're going to do this. And then he goes, why don't you have your own show? I said, well, that'll, you know, because they need me to coach. They need me to produce. He goes, well, you should have your own show. <laughs> I get that, but that'll come in time. Do you want me to call Oprah? No, I don't want you to call Oprah. Just let's this sit here. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, he called her anyway. And I didn't find this out for a couple of years, but it's those type of things that are done, you know, for me without my knowledge that I think I've learned from. So when I go somewhere and I have a platform, I've tried to follow the same thing and go, come on, there's a few people that need to go with me. And you're always be one of those people. And I think the main reason for that is, is I saw so much a little bit of me and you just in a female form of this person with incredible drive, tenacity, uh, that is so authentic. I can't almost, I like, I need to wear shades to talk to you sometimes (laughs) because I'm so impressed with the energy that comes forth from the life that you've created. So moving forward, you come out of that. Well, you're the reason I got my first radio show, you know. I kind of remember that. Because when I was on Oprah Radio, I met the general manager in the sound room and someone, one of your friends handed me her card and said, I have a friend at such and such big agency in LA, I won't mention Mm -hmm. it. And she said, you you need an agent. And I had no idea what any of that meant. That was before people were brands. Yes, you know, we were just ourselves. That. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know what that meant, and I definitely wasn't interested in getting on a plane pretty often and leaving Hunter. And um, I, there were other times I'd have people on my show who'd say the same thing: "Hey, I have this agent. You should talk to him." Like an agent. Mm-hmm. What do I need an agent for? Well, now I get it. Yeah, yeah. But um, and so I remember the general manager saying something to me about had I ever thought about a radio show, and then you had said, "Well, if he said it." And I've been telling you this for a long time, you yeah. said. And and so that's what happened. I kind of gave myself a deadline and thought, okay, well, I'm going to have a radio show within a year or six months or whatever it was. And six months or whatever that timeline went by and I hadn't done anything. And so I went online and started researching here locally to see if we had a local talk show. Mm-hmm. And we did. We had KPQAM, 560 AM. KPQAM, 560 AM. Yeah, and it's been around for over 100 <laughs> years now. It's still on the air. And I messaged the GM and said, I, I'm interested in doing a show. And he brought me in the next day. So all I did was pull clips from that radio stuff, yeah. that Oprah stuff. Yeah, I and mean, if you'd already done the Oprah stuff. You yeah, know, but I hadn't been hard. a host. I'd only been right. a guest, but, right? But, so. it's, but it's a good, you know, ammunition. Oh, yeah. yeah. It, it was a good, it wasn't just, you know, with yeah. a mic in my closet trying to make it sound good, you know. <laughs> and so I took it in there and he dangled a carrot. He said, hey, we, he, we talked for about 45 minutes. And somewhere in that conversation, he decided that I should represent their stations as in community relations right. and keep everybody happy about this big buy that had just happened by a, a corporate radio company. And that's what I did. And so I did the show and I did community relations. And that is how I figured out that I wanted a nonprofit of my own. And that is how I met with all of the companies at the early start of that recession. And they donated enough money that I was able to launch that nonprofit and and the book and all the things. So one thing just keeps leading to another. Right. It is the connect the dots theory. There's no doubt. You can't mm-hmm. see them when you're in it. You can only look back and go, wow, see how this connected to this. And I remember having a couple of phone calls from you, probably 07, 08, somewhere in there, uh, about this new step you were taking. And and the GM said this, and what do I say about this? When he offers this, what do I do? And so it was nice to watch this. And so again, looking from my shoes, my size 13s going, 
eight years ago, this woman is an unknown author on a radio show in Upper Michigan. And now you're mm-hmm. on the radio there and your naivete is your superpower back then. I think so. Right? <laughs> I think so. Because, oh, I just called the GM and we got the next day you're hired. I mean, I think there is a great power that comes from not knowing. I, absolutely. I think it comes from everything, right? I, I mean, I moved to Houston when I was 20 years old. It was the, some one of the highlights of my entire life was just driving, you know, getting that Honda with a U-Haul pulled behind, moving there to start my life with Wesley against all odds. And it was some of the happiest times of our lives. And mm-hmm. I couldn't have known what was coming. I wouldn't change a thing. And no. neither would he. He wouldn't even change what's happened now because we ended up with Hunter. Sure. And that's the honest truth. And so, you know, when I was diagnosed with cancer just a couple of years, well, first of all, his dad died within a year and a half of us getting married. And then I had cancer two years later. It We couldn't have seen it coming. Mm. Uh, but, but the lessons that we've learned along the way between my surviving cancer and navigating his critical complicated illness and death that later helped save my mom's life yeah and talk about connect the dots i i just uh i i just i i am so grateful for the skills that i have that enable me to help the people i've helped hmm. and those skills have come from you know i've paid money for lots of websites and logo ideas and i just couldn't do it anymore so i had to learn how to build yep. my own website or do my own audio or you know learn how to use adobe to edit video um and i think that that's where that comes from because you talk about the grind and what it takes every day to move forward in your life well if you want to do creative things you got to learn how to get creative yeah. and i just wanted to feed my kid feed my soul <laughs> be home by three o'clock every day right when got home right from school. Well, reasonable goals yeah and that reasonable was goal. that's what i've been trying to do all this time and then, a, now he's grown, but. and then a TED Talk pops up. Yeah. Thanks for that help. <laughs> well, I, I, wasn't remember... going, I wasn't going fishing for the compliment, but I'm just remembering, oh, yeah, she also did a TED Talk. I did a TED Talk. Well, the, the first version I sent you, you said, oh, Lisa, this is like four TED Talks. You need to narrow it down. <laughs> and what I knew for sure I needed in there was uh, Sylvester Stallone and the Rocky story. Yes, please do. Just expand a little bit on that. Oh, goodness. Um, you know, I was five years old when I saw the film Rocky. And I remember, you know, my dad's kind of a hurry up and go guy. Okay, the movie's over, let's go. And I didn't want to get out of my seat. I wanted to sit and watch the credits. I wanted to hear the music. And it, it, it changed me in some way I couldn't have possibly understood at five years old. And then when Rocky II came out, and I, I remember watching, you know, the news or seeing something about it in the newspaper on our coffee table that my dad had left out or, you know, there wasn't all this, there weren't so many ways to get this information. But here was Sylvester Stallone talking about the success of the first film, because when he was out promoting the first film, we didn't know it was going to be sure. what it became. So now he's telling a lot more of the backstory. And about that time, I'd asked my parents for a typewriter for Christmas. And about that time, I met Wesley, too. I was eight years old. And that typewriter was everything because it had corrective ribbon. And (laughs) I could make mistakes and fix it and keep going. Mm -hmm. And it it taught me over the years just following his story. And when Rocky Balboa came out, that was life-changing for me because he needed to redeem himself. And he knew it, right? the, the, The film before that wasn't what anyone had hoped or expected. And I'm sorry to say it, but he said it himself. And watching Rocky Balboa, and it made me realize what are we willing to endure to tell our story? 
What are we yep. willing to go through to tell our story? And so when I started doing the radio show and sharing the stories of other people, it started healing my life. And yeah. I believe that storytelling has the power to heal lives. And that's what I wanted to say in the TED Talk. And I couldn't say that without telling the story yeah, about Rocky. Yeah, it was really good. And when I watched, when you finished, I mean, it's, I've had three or four people over the years that uh, I've done a couple TED Talks and all of a sudden I'm an expert only because I've done it before they did it. So I'm not an expert by any means. But, you know, once you real, especially when it came to radio, you're used to speaking in segmented pieces as needed. So if you get seven minutes to talk and you've been in radio for any amount of time, that's not a big deal. You can fit a lot of things in seven minutes. And and when you sent me the information, I looked at it, I thought, you know, I mean, I've never heard anybody talk about Rocky in a (laughs) TED talk. I mean, come on, let's, let's expand on that. So it was fantastic. And, you know, with keeping in mind of a a miniature timeframe here, I don't want to miss anything, but I also think that there are things that stand out to me more than other things. And next thing I know, before we get to the, uh, what you're working on now, I don't know, a few years ago, three, four, five years ago, I can't remember exactly when it was. Now you're becoming a songwriter. Oh, that's on totally... top of everything else you're doing. I'd never forget the email. Hey, I'm, I'm going to be a songwriter now and I'm writing <laughs> this song. And what do you think of this? And I'm thinking to myself, are you, what's next for this chick? So tell well, me about you that. You know, that is a funny story. Um, the most creative opportunity I've ever had in my whole life. No, no, no doubt about it. And that was another connect the dots. Um, I'd had a woman named Wendy Moten who went on to um, win second place on The Voice a couple of seasons ago with Blake Shelton. And she was on my show because when I was on tour, so Toyota, uh, Town Toyota here where I live and Toyota, the big corporation, matches their budget. And I go on the, was going on these tours where I'd travel for several weeks and I'd interview people throughout the country about their Don't Wait story. And I'd gone to the Grand Ole Opry during the Nashville stop. A couple of my besties had flown in for the weekend. And, and after the Grand Ole Opry, we went to this bar dance place where I guess everybody goes. And she was there. She had had her debut on the, on the Grand Ole Opry stage that night. Mm-hmm. And we started talking and we stayed in touch. And I ended up having her on my show during COVID, during the lockdown, because I was interested in talking to this person who's been on the road for 25 years. What is she doing now? You know, right. what is that like? And then I had her on again another time, and her partner, um, uh, Dave David Santos, uh, he, he was on, and we he played piano. They sang together, and and so back when my grandfather had died in the early '90s, I was driving down the road in Houston. I really struggled. It was the first death I experienced that just felt too soon, and uh, he was the pillow of our family. And our, my grandparents had been married for fifty plus years. And it was just a tough thing. And I remember t- pulling over and writing on a napkin, the frown becomes a smile. And I find that all the while I was learning to let you go. And I later changed that to the sad becomes a smile. And and I wrote that down because I just thought, because it was the first time I thought about him and didn't feel sad. And I mm-hmm. wanted to remember it. So this napkin was in the car and we kept that car. That was the car that, Wesley or I drove if we didn't have Hunter because when he was about six months old, we finally bought the the brand new car that the baby seat stayed in and mm-hmm. Hunter was comfortable and with the tinted windows and all the things, right? And then there was this college car that I drove out with the U-Haul behind it um, all those years ago that we kept. And when Wesley died, um, months after, I sold that car and that napkin was still in the glove compartment. And so I kept it as a reminder and I thought, well, it's going to take longer and it'll probably be more intermittent, but I can get to a point where I think about Wesley someday and not, and not cry. Mm -hmm. 
and let it be this lesson that I learned with my grandfather. And so fast forward to, I've met Wendy Moten, I've met David Santos now through him coming on my show via Zoom. And I text Wendy one day and I say, hey, you know, I wrote this one line that I always thought would be a good country song. And I don't know, would you be interested in your downtime just kind of messing with it with me and see if we could write something? She says, well, I'm not a writer, but David is. Mm-hmm. So, so send him your line. He's busy, but if he's interested, he'll go back to you. Within 10 minutes, he texts me. He said, I think this is good. I think we could do something <laughs> One with line. From that one line. <laughs> and none of this would have been possible without him. He was yeah. the most generous, giving. He he was having me figure out what, what I wanted the melody to be. I didn't even know what a melody was. He was giving me um, apps to use for voice recordings and... He let me write every line to that song. He and he did the music and he had all these friends who were home during COVID and weren't on tour and they liked yeah. the story and they liked the song. So we're having you know the steel guitar player for Tim McGraw or the the music director, pianist, uh, you know, all these mm-hmm. people doing this work uh, for next to nothing. We got that song made for like $500. Oh my God. What? In Nashville. What is it, 1955? Um, Come on. I know. And they all, because David's such a good guy who brought yeah. them this good idea. Wow. And, and uh, you know, it was just incredible to to experience it. And he had a, a friend, Peter Young, who uh, produced it with him in his home studio, with in David's home studio. Mm-hmm. And next thing you know, I thought, well, again, how can we get some people involved and, you know, really honor the people who participated in this song. It, it, you know, I, I don't know who these people are. Right. But but Jimmy Nichols, who played the piano for Faith Hill or Denny Hemmingson, who worked, plays a mean steel guitar with him. Mm-hmm. How do we how do we do this? And so I thought, well, again, trying to honor Wesley and the anniversary of his transplant or his birthday or something every year, I reached out to Donate Life America. Right. And they're the national organization for uh, organ donor registry. And I said, hey, I'm writing this song and I'd like to release it on Wesley's birthday. And I'd like to split the money. We'll donate it between my nonprofit, the Don't Wait Project and Donate Life America. And they heard the song and they said yes. And, and we partnered on that. And then we asked it a call out to people. Send us your pictures. I'm going to try to include them in the video somehow and received hundreds of pictures most definitely would not have been possible without David Santos. And it goes to show, don't ever throw out anything you write because that napkin, I still have it today. He has your smile, your brilliant mind, your stubbornness, and yes, you kind. A lot like you, but more like From the start Saved you a place deep in my heart Some things are just meant to be The deepest wounds They never heal But we move on Cause that's the deal Come what may Your son, your wife I know you know we carved it out this beautiful life We lost the fight, God knows we tried 
One line out of a glove box. Are you kidding? <laughs> I never get Something, tired of hearing huh? that song. No, it's it's uh it's one of the greatest gifts I've ever been given for sure. Listen, Willie Nelson wrote "On the Road Again" on a barf bag on an airplane. <laughs> I, the songs that that's I think some of the greatest songs come from this little piece of something. Yeah, it's very very cool. And if that's not country, I don't know what is. Well, and that was uh, so Allie, um, who who sang the song, Allie Cutter. Uh, she reached out. We, you know, we just found her from, you know, asking around. Well, mm-hmm. We, David, found her um, asking around for voices of kind of the sound I wanted. And when she was all done, she reached out to me and to David, and she said, uh, "I can't tell you how much that song moved me. I've lost both my parents." Wow. And uh, and it was healing for me to sing that song. And I, we didn't know that about her. Right. No right. Mm-hmm. Well, so that's not enough for you. You got to keep moving on and doing things. And I always amaze when you pop up on my radar screen. I'm like, well, what is the gal up to now? So this latest thing, which uh, you walked me through yesterday and I have a couple thoughts on, is an app that you created. It's really an online course in a community that takes all of what you've done, in my opinion, and it puts it kind of all in one place, the most important parts of, of your journey. And it's called Take Good Care. 
and it's uh, a place where patients and caregivers can build community and get information that you didn't get, that a lot of people don't get. And I was listening to the conversations, these modules that you've built. And number one, uh, I told you, I had to call you right after I listened to it yesterday and watched <laughs> it. I was in tears yeah. because you were in tears. And I'm watching this person who I, I respect so much reliving the difficulty of losing Wesley and being so raw and honest about sharing that with people. And so whether it's your husband or your wife or your daughter, or so, whoever that person is, it's a common experience that we all have. So there's that piece. And the second piece is, how do you go <laughs> from from sewing alphabet letters? And by the way, did you ever put a, a, the, the letters together to write Astros or no? <laughs> good idea. Uh, a little I, late. That would be a good idea for my grandkids. Oh, there you go. There you go. Anyway, how do you go from that to this incredible... I mean, you're a production wizard, kid. I mean, watch this. And I asked you, did you hire somebody to do this? Like, it's like a million dollar application. You said, no, I just did it myself. Well, that's not, you know, I, I definitely did a lot of research for the, the community app that I wanted to utilize and and invest in. And then the video production it came from just, again, just having to figure out how to do things myself because I couldn't afford to keep right. paying people. to. I mean, this stuff, you know how much this yes, stuff costs I do. to do. Uh, it's incredible. And and there are tools now that they didn't have. I mean, I'm no expert for sure. I'm sure that some experts could watch that and tell me things I could fix. But excuse me. Point. Excuse me. Well, Lisa you're an B. expert. I wrote. And so <laughs> as I called you yesterday, I'm like, the pacing and your delivery. And I asked, were you reading a script? No, I had a couple notes. I'm like, a couple notes. Well, it was important to me to not, uh, you know, what we're talking about is the why section of, yes. of the, it's called Empathetic Healthcare Practices is the name of the course. And it's the why section. I tell why I did it, and I. It was important to me that I not that I not have a cut in it. I didn't. I want to do it yeah. one take, and um, I had to really collect my thoughts and think about what I wanted to share and what the message would be, and and I feel good about that. Um, and in the beginning, so I had what happened was right before COVID, I gave a keynote in 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 San Diego for the Association of Organ Procurement Organization. Anyone who has a transplant, anyone who donates, they go through that organization. It's the national organization. And my keynote is just telling this timeline of our story and the providers we've learned, met along the way and the lessons I've learned from them, the good ones and the not so good ones, and how all of that we learned later helped save my mother's life. And to tell about that just real, you know, yeah. tell about this real quick. It's not a real quick, but I will for time's sake. My mom was seemingly well one day and she was coughing blood the next and my dad called me. I met him at the hospital. And they thought they were going to go down and scope her and find an ulcer. And they found her esophagus was full of varices, which is like blood vessels bursting with blood. And they made the assumption that she had in-stage liver disease. They even called, the doctor even misdiagnosed it as alcoholic cirrhosis. My mom's not an alcoholic, not even close. And so there was just this not knowing. And they were basically treating her symptoms, which are complicated and horrible. And, and not getting to the bottom of it. And within, by Christmas, she was 90 pounds. She was dying. And she was hospitalized again and told she had a couple days to live. And it just didn't feel right to me. And I'd learned so much. My family, we'd been through so much. And I just told, I told the doctor in the hallway that my parents had been married, I think at that time it was 46 years. And this isn't how it ends for them. There's just, we have to get her moved. And we had a, a second opinion appointment scheduled at a different hospital a couple hours away in the city that 
w was going to evaluate her for a liver transplant, but the problem was her MELD score, which is what they look at for liver um, transplant qualification, was super low. And so it didn't make sense. And it didn't make sense because she didn't need a liver transplant. We got her moved, and by the next morning rounds, Dr. Berman, who's also in the course, we talk about seeking a second opinion, when and how and why. And, um, and she said, your mom doesn't have uh, liver disease. She has portal hypertension. She needs a TIPS procedure, which is basically a shunt. It took us three or four months to rehab her to the point that she could even have the procedure. Now she's got a hot gall about bladder, so that has to come out. I mean, it was just one thing after another. Mm -hmm. She got septic twice. Hmm. And I sat there with my dad in the ICU that first night with my mom. And I hadn't been in an ICU since Wesley died. Yeah. And that was not simple for me. Yeah. And I said to him, mom doesn't want me here. This is your job. This is your, for better or for worse, you're in sickness and health. And if I do it for you, you won't learn how to do it for yourself. And you won't learn whatever lesson you're supposed to learn in your life. So I can't do it for you, but I'll teach you everything I know. And, and, and real quick. I didn't know it was teachable. And real quick, I know your dad a little. Yeah. That's not, I'm thinking how, but you're her daughter. So you probably two communicate about the same. And I'm thinking of this guy who I've met once, I think on the phone, he did a radio, he was on yeah, one of the interviews years yeah. ago. And I met him once other time. Uh, that's, had to put him in a really interesting position. I'm sure he would have loved for me to just do it for him. Well, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah. I couldn't. And, and then my, what we had to think about was my mom. She didn't want me going through this all over again. Right. She wanted me home with Hunter. Right. You know? And so, but my dad became extraordinary at it. He wow. became the best student I could have imagined. And they navigate their healthcare without me just fine now. My mom's made a full recovery. She's incredibly healthy and hmm. i it that's when i started to figure out john that this is teachable yeah you know i'd get calls from people i don't even know asking for help with first steps or you know in the middle of the crisis they've just found out about some nut diagnosis and and i feel really helpful when i'm talking to them and then i feel helpless when we're done because what what are they going to do next yeah. i was i was a learn as you go patient all those years ago and so I thought, if I can teach my dad, then I can teach other people. And, and that's when I came up mm. with this course. And even then, I didn't want to build a community. I thought, no, 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 I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't know what that would look like. And I just really thought about it. And a friend of mine said, build the community and um, help people understand why you're doing what you're doing and give them a place to meet that isn't a Facebook group. Figure out how to do that. Yeah. So you yeah. sent me the app and I told you I only have four apps on my phone, three I don't even use. So, but I will do this for you and let me, and so you walk me through the procedure, which is basically painless. And I looked at some of the modules and of course, Dr. David Nodder was in there and uh, I just, you know, I, I was struck with his, I'm like, shouldn't all physicians be like this guy? But he wasn't mm -hmm. always that guy. He became that guy mm -hmm. uh, through a lot of trial and error. And it, it is just a wealth of knowledge and information, transformation and inspiration for people. So as we're getting short on time, do your pitch. Why? Why is it that people should be, you know, getting this app on their phone and who is it for and what does it cost? Well, it started out being for patients and caregivers who are navigating critical and chronic illness. And I would say that that app community is that. Take Good Care, the app, is where patients and caregivers can come and get support. There's a couple of different groups you can join. You create a username. You interact just like you would on any other social media. You can like, comment, but it's in the app. You're not anywhere else. You're not on any other platform. And so you, you, there's no distraction and everyone there, you know, when I write something now and I post, I feel like those are my people. 
those are your people. That's what you're coming there for. They've been through what you've been through. They're going through what you're going through. And it's a solution-based situation. We're not complaining about physicians. We're figuring out how to make it better. And we're not talking about medical breakthroughs. We're building community and we're also trying to build a team of trusted providers and let that improve communication and outcomes. And the course is within the app and that's called Empathetic Healthcare Practices. And that's, that is for everyone because we don't know when we're gonna end up in the ER. And if we don't have our estate planning, then you should watch module four and figure out what a physician directive is and who's your guardian and how you go about making sure people are on your HIPAA release and all of those things. It has everything from diagnosis to hospice care. And if you find yourself in a hospital setting, like I did many times, I didn't know until later that there's a rhythm to a hospital and you need to understand rounds Mm. and how you can effectively utilize the providers who are in a room all at once in the morning every single day. And so people who haven't been through a health crisis, this is your preparatory course. Hopefully you never need it, but chances are you or some you love is going to need medical intervention at some point. And that's just the that's just the hard truth. Um, so the course is for people who are navigating critical chronic illness, and it's for anyone who might. Which would be everybody listening. Every single person. Because at some point, you know, my, you mentioned earlier, I, I donated a kidney to my daughter when she was 13. She did well until 2018. So that was in 2002. She did well till uh, 2018. She went into rejection. She was on dialysis for two years. It was hell to watch mm-hmm. this and be, you know, and there's not much I can do at this point. I only have one kidney left. I was willing to give it up and check out, but she said, no, you, you got to <laughs> yeah. stick around. They don't let you do that. No, they don't let you do that. So um, she's worked her way out of that. She had a second transplant uh, two years ago. She's doing fantastic. Looks great all as well. But I am intimately connected to everything that you've talked about medically uh, on that side of the ball as our, my, our family is. And so it's, we're in this constant state of uh, awareness that a lot of people don't have when they have wellness. And sure. those are the kind of things that, you know, until you go through that and you we've been at this since she was born, it becomes a part of your life and you can't really explain it to anybody till they're in it. And I always, I've never figured out the whole, um, you know, adversity to giving up an organ, whether it's you're dead or a living donor, because you can't do anything when you're gone. And as a living donor, whether it's a kidney or a piece of your liver, um, I don't understand. But again, it's until it's in your hip pocket, it's somebody else's problem. Exactly. Yeah. Listen, exactly. where do people find all this stuff you're involved with? First of all, how do they how do they get the app? How do they get it on your phone? And how do they open it up? And how do they subscribe to it? So I chose to launch the app uh, and the course on the 19th anniversary of Wesley's transplant, which is February 28th. Mm-hmm. And so it, it will be right now. It's invite only because we're having folks like you check it out and mm-hmm. see what mistakes I made and how I can make it better, and uh, or what I did right and what I can do more of. And so you can go to the um, Google Play Store or to that place you get your Apple apps and look for Take Good Care. And I looked, it popped up first. Nobody used that name. Can you believe it? (laughs) No. (laughs) Did you trademark that? Uh, It's in the works. Yeah. Good, good. Yeah. And so they uh, can click on that and download the app. You get a seven day free trial. It's under eight bucks after that. Yep. Or 55 bucks a year. I don't buy Starbucks coffee, but I'm pretty sure it's about the price of a cup of coffee. I with you. And um, you can build community. You can join different groups. There's the daily group, the after group. There's a group that's specific that's only open to the people who've taken the course just because you have to be familiar with the content. It's a Q&A group. We're going to take a deeper dive. And then I'm also hosting a podcast called Take Good Care. Mm-hmm. And it'll expand upon the topics that come up in the community and throughout the course. So. 
and all the rest of this stuff, are you still doing the Don't Wait project or is that on hold? Yeah, still have the Don't Wait project. I'm not touring anymore. I did the three tours with Toyota that I said I'd do. Um, it was a great experience. It was wonderful. Got to tell a whole lot of great stories. We still have our school program where we help empower students through film who are experiencing bullying or other, you know, keeping them safe on the mm-hmm. internet and stuff like that. Um, and I pro- partner with, you know, like I did with Donate Life America for the song. So other things come up. Yeah. And as one who has not only written three books, but also works on books for other people, I keep thinking at some point she's going to call me and go, guess what? There's another book. <laughs> yeah, maybe. But you know what I think, John, more than anything, and you know, we can't make plans, but um, you know, I didn't even want to charge for the app and I certainly didn't want to charge for the course, but I, this is work, you know, yeah, this, it is, is. this is yeah. my job and this is my work and I have to get okay with that. And the real truth is I'm 51 years old and this is what I want to do until I don't work anymore. This is what I feel like is the culmination of every single thing I'm supposed to do. Last question. I kind of know the answer, but I'm going to ask it for those who have not heard this before. You look back on the arc of all this, these experiences you've had, going back to when you first met Wesley when you guys were just kids and, of course, moving forward from that. And you go through cancer and then, of course, he, he gets sick and goes through a transplant and then he passes away and you're single mom raising Hunter and... And, and all these things that we've talked about for the past 50 some odd minutes condensed down in a lifetime. And I wonder about the aha in this. There's probably more than one, but when you turn your head at night and you kind of look off to the side and you go, huh, what do you think about? You know, I've really tried hard ever since cancer. We thought that was the worst thing that was ever going to happen to us. And it wasn't. And since then, I've always tried to balance like where's the balance what good can come from something so horrible and with cancer that happened you know I got to write a book and help some people we had our baby despite the risk of infertility he's a grown man nothing really horrible happened after that and when Wesley died I just I wanted that same approach but what could possibly happen in our lives that was going to make sense that Wesley isn't here what what's the trade-off with that that my son was lived without his father and it was it was during this time over the last couple of years of thinking about building this course and what does that look like and how would I even go about it and taking courses about building courses and and it was in preparation of all of this that I'm working on now that I thought you know if Wesley could talk to me he would tell me that every single thing we learned is what led to saving my mom's life. So if losing his life means I saved my mom's life and that maybe, you know, I don't know if this app or this course can save people's lives, but I know it can improve their lives and I know it can give them an education that I didn't have and they will have it in their back pocket for the rest of their lives if they ever need it again. And it doesn't exist and now it does this skill set in a teachable course. And I look at that and that's not a pitch. You know me, that's not a pitch. Mm -hmm. It is. It is knowing that, okay, so so I've made good on that. Like, here's the balance that, that all of this stuff that we've been through um, has probably led to this. And I'm not saying that's the reason he's not here. I'm just saying it's a reason I can get up every day, even without him here. Yeah. Lisa B., every time I hear from you, I know something good's going to happen. Thank you. All these years that I've watched this, it's like the Lisa Bradshaw movie. <laughs> I got front row seats with a few other of your friends and I get, we get the popcorn and I go, what's she going to do next? Well, I told you in that email yesterday that you sent me, I, uh, there's four people who made, uh, what I do in my career possible. It's Wesley, it's Hunter, 
it's Dan Conway who passed, who gave me that. He, who, he's passed away. He gave me that first radio show, and it's you. And I believe that because um, they're all the pieces of the puzzle. I can look back and see those two men. So thank you. Well, you're welcome. And I'm honored, honored to be in that company. And, and uh, I'm not going to see Hunter B. pitching anytime soon. But give him my best. And uh, if he ever wants to throw the ball, I'm around. <laughs> thank you so much.